Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the weekly podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. My name is Young Lim, and I am the desk editor here at DebtWire Municipals. Today is Thursday, August 22nd, and we've got a full house of interesting stories to discuss. From the Windy City of Chicago, reporter Kaylin Devitt will be discussing the lawsuit that pits taxpayer John Tillman versus the state of Illinois with a hedge fund named Warlander Asset as part of the mix. She'll also be discussing the landmark lawsuit against opioid manufacturers, which unlike the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement from over 20 years ago, has now cities, counties, and towns fighting for a piece of the pie like the states did back then. In our New York office, we have reporter Maria Monte discussing how a California state Supreme Court overturned a lower court's ruling that favored the city of Oroville in an inverse condemnation case. And finally, our head of Muni Research, Greg Clark, will will focus on the Las Vegas monorail. All right, let's start with Caitlin. Caitlin, how are you doing out there? Good. How are you, Young? All right. So let's talk about this lawsuit. And tell us about the individual who actually brought up upon the Illinois lawsuit and his reasoning for having the bringing it on. Well, his name is John Tillman. He's an Illinois taxpayer. He's also the head of a, um, a conservative think tank called the Illinois Policy Institute. He's pretty active in um, Illinois politics and in Republican circles and is pretty well known. So he brought the lawsuit and as well as uh, Warlander Asset Management, which is a New York-based hedge fund. They brought it in July and they seek to invalidate $14.3 billion of Illinois geo bonds. They formally brought it against the Illinois governor, the comptroller, the treasurer, and they want to invalidate them because they say they were illegally issued, that they violate something called the specific provisions, I mean, specific purposes provision of the state constitution that they were issued to generally. So um, that is, the, that is the, the reason and the argument behind the lawsuit. How has the, uh, the state of Illinois responded? The state's responded by, you know, sort of trying to bat it away, saying it's very trivial, it comes way too late. Some of the bonds in question uh, for the lawsuit were issued in 2003. And so they say it comes too late and it's trivial and it's an attempt to uh, basically sort of legislate a type of fiscal policy through a lawsuit. They want the state to be more responsible, but that's not something that, you know, should be decided in the courts. And so the way it works in Illinois is you have to, a court has to actually approve, you can file a petition for a lawsuit, but the court has to actually approve that petition um, so that it can formally be filed as a lawsuit and go forward. So that's the stage we're at right now. And the grounds of which the judge can dismiss it there's a couple grounds. One is trivial, and like I said, that the lawsuit is trivial. And as I said, that's what the state is sort of arguing, and that these guys are just sort of trying to um, be, make a political point with this lawsuit. And another way uh, it could be dismissed is if, it's, if the motive is considered malicious. And that's something else we see here, because there's two big Illinois geo investment firms, Nuveen and Alliance Bernstein, filed Friends of the Court briefs in support of the state, and they've argued in there that Warlander has a sort of a malicious underlying motive here that they hold credit default swaps 
on the state's bonds. And so if the state ends up defaulting, which is what, of course, the lawsuit wants them to do, the lawsuit wants them to stop making debt payments on that $14.3 billion. If they do that, then Warlander is going to ultimately profit from it because they hold those swaps. So that is something else that the judge is going to have to consider. Now, speaking of the judge, I believe his name is, uh, it's a circuit court judge named Jack Davis. What exactly did he say during the hearing? Well, there was a hearing held last week, and what he said during that hearing was a lot of questions about what I was just talking about, Warlander's motive. The first thing he did was he allowed those amicus briefs to be filed, and that was a decision he had to make. He could have dismissed them, but he said, you know, he thought that they brought something good to the case, so he allowed those to go forward. And he spent a lot of time questioning Tillman's attorney <clears throat> about the the motive behind Warlander and and uh, and if they if they stand to profit. And you could he was clearly sort of I don't know what the word is you know annoyed or a little frustrated with it. At one point he called it a distraction that they were part of the lawsuit, and he wasn't sure why they were there in the first place. So he's going to make a decision in 14 days from last Thursday which is, I believe, the 19th. And um, so we should see by the end of the month a decision that he'll make on whether or not the lawsuit can go forward. Now, Illinois is probably one of the the worst-rated states in the nation, uh, near junk-level uh, status. What What's the credit impact uh, in terms of the for the, each outcome? Well, you know, it sort of depends, of course, which side you talk to. What the state is saying is that already you're seeing um, negative impact just from the filing of the of the petition, that the, that the the spreads widened in the days after it was filed, and that if the state, um, if it is allowed to go forward and is ultimately victorious, it'll you know it'll cause ma- massive problems for the state's credit. It'll immediately be junked, as you say. It's the lowest rated state, and its ratings um, are you know, just one notch above junk by a couple of the rating agencies. So they just say even the filing has been bad enough, and if it goes forward, it would just be, you know, this blow-up for the state. The other side says that the Tillman taxpayer, Warlander side, says, well, we actually, you know, it would be good for the state's credit because we would be taking $20 billion off the books. That's the principal and interest that's due on those bonds, which mature in 2033. So they would say instantly we would take $20 billion off the books. That's going to be great for the taxpayers. And also, um, also we're going to get this question over the specific purposes provision in the state constitution. We're going to get that settled once and for all, so that's going to provide clarity for bondholders going forward. So, of course, market participants on the muni side tend to agree with the state that, you know, this is, this would really be a massive problem if the lawsuit was victorious. And also that, you know, successful models tend to be replicated, so you would see more lawsuits filed like this, not just in Illinois, but also possibly nationally, where people are seeking for various reasons to invalidate bonds. All right, Caitlin, one last question in terms of a timeline. When do you think a decision will be made? Well, as I said, the the uh, decision, the, the judge's decision on whether or not it can go forward should be made by the end of the month. Um, so we might see it come down sometime next week, even the end of this week. It hasn't as of today. And then if it goes, and then at that point, if it is allowed to go forward, then we'll see a schedule hammer, hammered out at that point. All right, Caitlin, thanks a lot, uh, and thank you for your continued coverage. Hold on, we're going to come back to you with another big story you wrote about. Let's come back to New York and Maria Monte. Hi, Maria. Hi, Young. How are you? Good, how are you? So let's talk about uh, the where in the town of Oroville, 
And for our listeners out there, Oroville is about an hour outside of the state's capital of Sacramento. And another interesting factoid is that uh, it got a big population surge because uh, the, the horrible campfires, the campfire that happened last two years ago, people from Paradise moved to Oroville. So that was an influx of people there. I didn't know that. Interesting. Uh, but let's talk about the case. Uh, you've got the California State Supreme Court, and they overturned a lower court uh, favoring Oroville in an inverse condemnation case. First of all, what is inverse condemnation? Inverse condemnation is a California liability law for utilities. Inverse condemnation uh, holds utilities responsible for wildfire damage caused by their equipment, regardless of negligence. So now, after explaining that, tell us about the case itself. What's it all about? The case itself, uh, a dental office had a sewer backup, um, and they found or they wanted to hold the city liable. Two courts, a trial court and an appeals court, both found in favor of the dentists and because, using a strict interpretation of the inverse condemnation law. Uh, the Supreme Court interpreted it a little bit differently, and they found some negligence on the part of the dental, uh, on part of the dentists themselves, they didn't install some sort of valve, which was also partially responsible for the uh, sewer backup. Now, what was the basis for the lower court's decision, and why did the state supreme court uh, eventually overturn it? The lower court used a strict interpretation of the inverse condemnation law, whereas the Supreme Court determined it could not ignore the negligence of the property owner, um, again, because they didn't install uh, that valve that would be necessary to prevent such a backup. And for our listeners uh, and readers' point uh, interest, why are we interested in this story? It's meaningful as wildfires become increasingly destructive in California. I know this is a sewer case, but stay with me here. As you may be aware, it's one of the reasons PG&E is in bankruptcy right now. Because of inverse condemnation law, it must compensate victims for damages, again, regardless of its own negligence. And the concern among utilities in California is that this could send all of them to bankruptcy. Although the legislature had the opportunity to amend inverse condemnation laws recently, they declined to address that part of the issue in the utility wildfire relief legislation they approved last month. So the broader impact here is that the Supreme Court found the property owners must demonstrate something to prove to prove liability on behalf of or on the utilities part moving away from an automatic strict liability assessment and requiring a little bit more analysis posing questions about the reasonableness of uh, the public agency's actions and potential responsibilities of private property owners very interesting uh and one last question Inverse combination versus, is there a difference between that and, let's say, eminent domain? Absolutely. Uh, Eminent domain is the right of a government or any other agency uh, or public agency to um, take private property for public use, although with compensation, whereas inverse condemnation is a liability law. All right. Well, thank you very much, Maria. All right, let's go back to Caitlin in Chicago. Caitlin, let's talk about your story you wrote on the opioid epidemic in terms of the lawsuits by uh, currently going on in Ohio, where you've got cities and counties getting involved. And there's some comparisons to the tobacco 
uh, massive settlement agreement many years ago by uh, many of the state's attorneys generals. Uh, tell us about how the tobacco legacy is playing out with this opioid litigation. Well, there is, as you say, in Ohio, we have a consolidated case that um, that was brought by local governments, some Ohio counties and local governments, and that that case is consolidated over 400 of those local cases, and it's in federal court in Ohio, and it's set to have a bellwether trial in October unless there's a settlement reached. And in that case, you that that's just one chunk of all of these different lawsuits playing out across the country against the opioid manufacturers and distributors, and in some cases, the Sackler family, which owns Purdue. So all these sort of different defendants are involved. All 50 states have filed their own um, lawsuits in state court, and and then in Ohio, as I said, you have this local this group of local governments that that are in this um, consolidated lawsuit in the federal courts. So the this I'm being long-winded to try to answer your question, but with the tobacco settlement, which was in 1998, what we saw was there was that settlement was hammered out between the states and the tobacco manufacturers and the money flowed from the tobacco manufacturers directly to the states. In this case, and, and the cities complained because a lot of times it never trickled down to them, even though it was supposed to. It was also supposed to be sent, spent on um, health-related anti-smoking, lung cancer treatment, those sort of things. A lot of the money didn't go there. It just ends up plugging budget holes or state lawmakers used it for whatever they wanted. Cities compl- and counties and villages and townships complained about it. So in this case, in the opioid sort of the, the massive landscape of litigation that's playing out in the opioid world, the cities and counties are trying to position themselves to get direct funds from the opioid companies so that they don't have the same thing happen as happened last time. Before I go on to my next question, I just want to mention highlight something in your article that you wrote that this proposed class of cities and counties, it's massive. It, we're talking about like over 30,000 participants? Yeah, it's actually, it's over 33,000, it's every county, township, you know, city in the U.S. That's the proposed class that's coming out of this, out of this consolidated case. They're, they proposed a, a class that would consist of every single city and, and county and local government entity in the U.S. Wow, that's huge. Uh, are we talking about a David and Goliath situation here? Well, I guess you could if, you know, if you want to say there's 33,000 Davids, that would be, you know, so at that point it's sort of, um, but sure, you know, the states really consider themselves to be the, the, have the primary responsibility for all the people in the state. They consider local governments to be just their creatures and, and it, that, that they're the ones that have the, the right to, you know, the sovereign right to be negotiating with the opioid manufacturers. So to that extent, yeah, it is sort of, you know, the small versus the big. And the states really believe that the um, the local governments will be interfering in negotiations, even though these are, as I said, these are separate lawsuits and separate courts. They really believe that, that if this proposed class is allowed to be created, then then that's going to that's going to cause some ripple effect and some interference with their own with the state's own negotiations with the opioid defendants. How many separate lawsuits are we talking about here? 
That's a good question. I mean, there's, I think there's over 2,000 on the local side, 400 of which have been consolidated in this one bellwether case that we're talking about, but there's about 2,000. And then, and then the states have their own and they're continuing to file just yesterday. I believe just yesterday, Illinois announced that it was going to be suing the Sacklers, um, which New York state, I think said it was doing last month. So it's just continuing to, to kind of play out. Oklahoma is sort of out in front of this. They've already reached resolution. They've already got some settlements and reached resolution on some of their cases and others are still, they, and then other cases are still in Oklahoma are still going to come to, they've gone to trial and are going to be decided, but they've also reached settlements. So it's, it's very, as the judge in the federal Ohio case said, it's the most complex constellation of cases, he, he, you know, that, that they think has ever been filed. So when do you think a decision will be made? Well, in the Ohio case, the judge is going to decide soon, any day on whether or not that proposed class can be created. And so that's going to be, that'll be a big deal. That'll be a big decision. He's indicated he's kind of like, that he's sort of in favor of it. He has said that um, it's a, it's a novel solution because it's unprecedented. It's a novel solution to a novel problem. So he's indicated he kind of likes it, but we'll see when the formal ruling is. And then if that proposed class is created, then all the cities and states will either opt out. If they don't do anything, they'll automatically be in there. And then, as I said, if there's not a settlement, which the judge is pushing for hard in this case, then we'll see a trial in October. But that's just that one case, so there's lots more to play out. All right. Well, we'll definitely be... Uh keeping tabs on that. Thank you, Caitlin, for your coverage. And let's come back to New York with Greg Clark, our head of research. Greg, let's talk about the Las Vegas Monroe. I just want to let, let our listeners know that you're a huge Frank Sinatra fan. And yes, it, I, it, think, I think that's why I was assigned to talk about the monorail, wasn't I? Exactly. And uh, if you were alive today, what would Old Blue Eye say about this? Would he say, uh, luck be a lady? I'm not sure about that. There's a, there's a number of songs he could probably devote to the monorail. I think they should have named it after Frank. That would have helped the ridership. Honestly, I, th- I think that it was a missed branding opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't a very good year when the bonds were issued in 2000. At least, eventually, it wasn't a very good year. This is Las Vegas monorail is known uh, for our listeners who haven't heard of it before as a famously failed project. Uh, In September of 2000, a state agency issued bonds, loaned the monies, which was $451 million, to the Las Vegas monorail company, which in turn used the money to expand the existing monorail system from eight-tenths of a mile to four miles. Uh, The monorail is the only privately owned public transportation system. It's a a not-for-profit, but it is privately owned in the U.S. and receives no public operating subsidies. Uh, when the bonds were issued, the uh, projected coverage of debt service was at least 1.37 times, which isn't bad for a project finance deal. And that was based on projected average daily ridership of 53, 54,000 people in 2004, which was the first year of operations. That translated into annual ridership in 2004 of 19.5 million. So the system officially opened on July 15 of 04. It has seven stops and takes 15 minutes to travel the length of the Las Vegas Strip. So 
I think uh, just for clarification, I believe the the main sources of revenue for the Las Vegas Mining Mill are the passengers yourself that pay to get on, and then also I believe corporate sponsorships. Yeah, advertising that kind of thing. All right. So, how many passengers have they actually had? Well, in two thousand nine, instead of tens of millions, which they expected, uh, they had six million. So you can imagine that uh, the fares weren't there, the revenues weren't there. There are two big problems with the, uh, with the monorail. One is that it doesn't actually run on Las Vegas Boulevard, which is also known as the Strip, quote-unquote. As a rule, it runs behind the Strip hotels. Uh, you have to walk from the monorail to your hotel, and if you're in the Las Vegas heat, that's not a pleasant prospect. And it's somewhat expensive because it's not publicly subsidized. Currently, one ride costs $5. I think that's regardless of whether you go one stop or the whole length. There are some discounts available if you're there for a few days for a convention or a week, whatever. Uh, Related to all this is that there are some mechanical problems. In September of 2004, shortly after the official opening, a 60-pound tire assembly fell more than 20 feet off the train and that resulted in a shutdown of, I'm, I'm not sure how long, but that was, that was, I think, the first big problem that they had. And, of course, the recession didn't help. Uh, if you look at the uh, six, million, 6 million passengers in 2009, that was uh, suppressed to some extent because that, of course, is in the heart of the recession. So, eventually, the monorail company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in January of 2010. The latest news that we've talked about this week, and we've had a fair number of readers interested in this story, again, because this is a, a famous muni bond issue, uh, famous, for unfortunately, for the wrong reasons. They're trying to get some more money to expand. Uh, they want to expand the, uh, the monorail to the Mandalay Bay, which in turn would put it within walking distance of the new football stadium, which is being built for the current Oakland Raiders, will be, I guess, the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, so that's, that's why they want to expand. Uh, in order to issue tax-exempt bonds, though, they needed the approval of the governor. And a spokes, spokesman for the governor, Steve Sisolak, who's a Democrat, recently said the governor will not give state approval for the monorail company to borrow on a tax-exempt basis. So there are some um, possibilities left for the monorail. They could issue, always issue their own bonds and pay them at a taxable rate. Uh, the, the, the current company's president, current company president, a gentleman named Curtis Miles, said uh, recently that the bond plan was the best, the tax-exempt bonds were the best, but not only way in which it could pursue the matter. Well, I've got one final question for you, Greg. You talked about expansion plans. There's been talk about expanding to McCarran Airport. How is that going? Well, the current plan that just got uh, turned down, apparently, by the governor uh, would not have uh, expanded the, uh, the monorail to the, to the airport. A lot of people say that expansion to the airport would, uh, would help the monorail economically and make it economically functioning, feasible. Uh, I'm not so sure about that because the airport is relatively close to the Strip. And if you have a choice between taking a cab or an Uber from the airport directly to the front door of your hotel 
And on the other hand, taking a monorail ride, which is going to leave you with a hefty walk after you get off the monorail with all your luggage, uh, to me, the choice is pretty clear. So uh, I'm not sure that an extension to the airport would, would solve, would, would help all that much. All right. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you to Caitlin and Maria as well. And thank you to our producer, Andrew Constantino. But most of all, thank you to the audience for listening in. And please continue to log into debtwire.com for the latest on distressed muni credits. Have a good day.